Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. It feels a little corny to describe anything in Harper's Magazine as beloved, but findings comes pretty close. First published in December 2003, and consistently authored by contributing editor Rafael Krolzevi since December 2007, The Column. Three paragraphs, carefully woven from the disparate discoveries of recent scientific studies, is emblematic of the magazine's sensibility. It also carries Krolzevi's distinctive voice every month. In addition to findings, the January 2022 issue also features an errand, a short story by Krolzevi that draws from a variety of linguistic and storytelling traditions. While wandering through Old Delhi to order wedding invitations for their elderly auntie's impending nuptials, a brother and sister seek out a seller of hearts, an enigmatic item that the siblings understand will ensure the success of the marriage. I spoke with Krul Zedi about both contributions, including the ins and outs of creating findings and how science informs his fiction and literary nonfiction work. Here's our conversation. So let's start with findings, because if the index is sort of like the little appetizer at the beginning of the magazine, findings is the little after the main course treat. It's like the thing that ends the meal. You're dead silent, so I think perhaps you disagree with this assessment. <laughs> no, I was I was thinking through the implications. Is it is it an amuse bouche that you eat on the toilet? Um I mean that's that's a very sort of dignified old publishing way of thinking through it, like the the Proust questionnaire at the back of Vanity Fair with the assumption that it will be read at the end and not irresponsibly because it is just one of the outward facing pages, right. which is always possible. <laughs> but I, I think people who are fans of findings would love to have a sense of your process for putting the column together each month. Where does the cycle begin for you? Does it ever end? And what is your system for sifting through such apparently vast amounts of scientific information? So the first and most important thing I do every month is go through a few fire hose sources that supply me with between 1,000 and 1,500 university press releases from labs and other departments. So this will cover recent discoveries and journal publications in all sorts of fields, physics, astronomy, zoology, archaeology, economics, social psychology, just, you know, every, everything that you would expect. And that gives me a, a, a certain baseline so that I know that I have enough recent research to play around with. The next step is to fill in some of the gaps there. And so I'll look around in the news and try to find more items to fill in subject matter clusters that I already see developing. I might have uh, sort of a run of five items about ancient cities, and these are archaeology items. So I'll go looking for another one. Or it might be about making an actual paragraph that's cohering fit together better. So if I have a cocaine item and I need to get to an astronomy item, then I might look for a scientist named Bowie or a, a study about interstellar dust to, to bridge that gap if everything else is in the right order and I need that 
So for this, I'll go searching through individual journals. I'll go on Twitter where I have a lurking account to check out what certain scientists or science journalists have posted. I'll look through the PubMed database for certain keywords. And as I'm doing all this, sometimes the the press releases or the study abstracts are sufficient to proceed. It's just clear what the main takeaway is and there's nothing more nothing more to do. Or in other cases, it'll be clear that I've really got to read the whole study or at least read around in it. Not so much for the legitimacy of, of the study, though that's, that's the case sometimes, whether there's something questionable about the way it's set up or the sample size, whatever. But what I'm talking about here is, is in trying to fit all the parts together, sometimes the, the main takeaway from the study is not going to be the thing that I needed when I started poking around in the world, it might be something about the methodology and not about the findings at all. I think there was one about about a population level study of snake bite in Bangladesh. So in that, the abstract is just going to have very general information about the findings. But what I want to look for, of course, is how many people got bitten on the butt by a poisonous snake. So then I have to go in and dig around for that. So that's the outline of of the process every month does that bring us around to wacky animal news i feel like like that's where you were going with this <laughs> no i mean because obviously i i edit and i sometimes write the weekly review and i have to say you know sometimes we share stories and the process is much the same where you know the weekly review it's uh, the lowest rung on the riff of Harper's longstanding fascination with facts. It's sort of like this, you know, parodying these glib answers by taking because the index, obviously, the index is premised on, you know, here are just these numbers. But through juxtaposition, they become kind of like a chronicle. They become a running joke. They contrast against each other. They reveal little weird things about the world. And again, some of the associations are obvious. Some of them are more abstract. And really, when I am trying to do the weekly review, which is a summary, sort of like different news stories put together every week, and again, in the same sort of format where it's kind of like a chronicle, I struggle because it's like the third graph. How much animal funny stuff do you put in there? Because you don't want to put, you don't want the like the last part to be just like goofy animal shit. But yet, that is why the not? most. I mean, why not? Sometimes, very, <laughs> very it's, rarely. It's like overdone, you know. Yeah. Well, because they're still animals are always doing crazy shit, or they're finding out things about animals that are very funny. Yes, and I'll say actually, if if you do, if you do feel like you want to pull up and read one paragraph of a findings or a few sentences of a weekly review. We can we can very quickly touch on some of the stuff that's going on there. Oh yeah, let's uh no, because I was actually going to And in and in the meantime I can tell you a story that you might not know about the weekly review and findings. Oh please do. So an interesting thing is that findings in the weekly review were once basically a single animal and it was called findings and this was after Roger Hodge who was later the editor of the magazine. He invented findings, but it had some other newsy stuff in it that was not specifically science-related. And that ran on the back page of the magazine, and it was tilted towards science, but it also had some larger kind of world events in it. And then the weekly review grew out of the 
desire to separate the topics more firmly and to have just a, a web-friendly presence for one of these characteristic Harper's short-form projects. Right. And it's been going for like almost 30 years, which is pretty good, considering Harper's adversarial relationship to the web, supposedly, <laughs> allegedly. The January issue of Findings begins... Quote, a review of 14,024 babies injured while being worn by caregivers found the youngest to be most vulnerable. One quarter of first-year college students reported moderate to severe pet separation anxiety. Shelter cats gradually become less unfriendly, and a case of hip dysplasia suggests saber-toothed cats were sociable. A finished study inventoried hyperactivity, impulsivity in 11,000 dogs. End quote. So, yeah, let's maybe break that down. That's interesting. That's not the whole paragraph, but it has a nice no. kind of symmetry to it because you begin with 14,000 odd babies and end with 10,000 dogs. Was it dogs? Yes. Okay, not puppies. All right. That would have been neater, <laughs> but I'll, t I'll take it. So what's the arc here? We have babies and vulnerability. Then we have pet separation anxiety. So then I suppose we're moving forward maybe with the implication that the college students are being a little bit childlike but also there's a there's a caregiving component there's a dependency component so mm -hmm. i imagine that's the theme that we were going with there and then pet separation anxiety to shelter cats that's clear shelter cats to saber-toothed cats that's obvious too i feel but it's a it's a nice it's a nice jump and then we go from saber-toothed cats which are not domestic cats, obviously, back to dogs and hyperactivity. And I suppose what joins those as well is that hip dysplasia, we think of it as a human thing. Of course, there's no reason that other animals can't have it, but it doesn't come up in that context very often unless you are dealing with an old dog or something like that. And then hyperactivity and impulsivity. Of course, once again, there's no reason to anthropomorphize those qualities or see them as inherently anthropocentric, but I would suggest we tend to do that. And so it's kind of nice to have that apply to the dogs. So we have a kind of a kind of humanizing of the saber-toothed cats as well as the dogs through sort of uh, human pathologies. I suppose I suppose these are all pathologies in the sense that we we assume it's a it's above the pathological threshold if the <laughs> if the Finnish scientists are diagnosing the dogs in this way. Yes. I would also just say just on the level of language, it's interesting to see. So not only, you know, each sentence or each clause in the sentence is distilling a giant, supposedly giant study. And one particular part of this that I really love is shelter cats gradually become less unfriendly. So the double, the use of the double negative is interesting. There. It's also just not, it's very artful, not used nearly enough in non-British writing, I think. And the use of Finnish, because it's kind of like one of those words like Walla Walla, Washington, or just what, or Cucamonga, like one of those fun, it's, it's being used for the, for the way it sounds, kind of a joke name. Yes. It, it's not necessarily saying Finnish people are stupid. It's just like this little splash of flavor. It's interesting that you said the thing about non-British writing because part of my education is, as as we will come on to later when we discuss the the short story that I also have in the January issue, that is a part of my 
background. So I have, in spite of sounding very American, when it comes to prose, some of the sensibility that was beaten into me early on is kind of inescapably Anglophone, let's say. And so I, I find it, it's, it's once in a while when I file copy, I will get some comment like, once in a while, something I'll write will sound pretentious because it'll sound like I'm trying to sound English, whereas <laughs> it's just it's just operating on a fairly deep level that I have to be aware of and get rid of in a lot of cases right. because it, it won't track things like the correct use of, of whilst <laughs> instead of while. <laughs> Um, which I which I don't I don't use, but it's just it's just there are contexts where that's just that's just the right word, and it means a different thing because while can you can mean whereas and whilst just means simultaneously with. Anyway, that's that's one of I'm I'm glad you or am I scared that you picked up on that? Anyway, you picked up on that. It's <laughs> it's correct, and that's that's all I have to say about that. No, I there is a kind of. Um, Secondary use of demonyms and toponyms and even given names in findings that I think you're you're right to pick up on that as a sort of theme because there will be a suggestive use of Brazilian that's meant to call to mind not just the country that the, the scientists are from or that a certain event involving animals happened with, but it might have a secondary meaning in there because we're we're the next item will be about pubic injury or something like that. And so then the mind goes to waxing or there will just be place names that are silly or that or that are evocative in certain unexpected ways. And and finishes is one of those, I guess, because it also it it sounds close enough to other words that it just kind of muddies something in the ear in a way that can be interesting for the reader. I suppose another thing that I like is that with a lot of the archaeological stuff, you get to use the ancient place names, which sound very Ghostbusters, for <laughs> lack of a better term. There's something where you just you just expect Baal, the blood god, to be rising out of this particular temple, given how many guttural consonants are are in the name, and it just that can just be great. That can that can make a sentence. That can be enough to warrant the inclusion of a given item in the column. And. This is perhaps a less juicy literary question, but does does the veracity of a finding ever prevent you from using it? Because part of the joke, I would argue, or maybe one of the premises of findings is that there are a million studies done every month. Some of them are done that in a way that you would not say are scientifically viable. So there's a study of 24 people that prove that circumcisions make you live longer. And uh, it's by some bizarre university you've never heard of. And it's like, a newspaper will just run with it. They're they're clearly in the pocket of big circumcision. Exactly. Or all these fucking studies about introverts that prove that extroverts are the worst people alive and introverts are actually the coolest human beings of all time. So, you know, does the veracity ever come into question for you? Or is it just purely about, you know, finding these moods, finding these themes, finding these juxtapositions? Well, both. So what will happen with some of those is if there's a really iffy study, the sample size is really small or big whatever is paying for it, and it's and it's clearly to be taken with a grain of salt for whatever reason, I'll still try to include it, but actually make the iffiness and 
explicit or implicit part of the way that the sentence is written. It can even be the case that a, a null finding can be interesting because if you set out to prove or disprove something totally ridiculous and the experiment provides a, a null result or it just doesn't align with the hypothesis in the way that they were planning, that, that in itself is interesting and you still get most of the juice out of it that you would have gotten. And then there, there are all kinds of different things that make an individual finding worthy. It can be something that is very expected, like the sky is blue, or I'm trying to think of one that would actually fit that. But you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. The voices of extroverts are louder, right? So that wouldn't surprise anyone. So that's obvious. But if it were the voices of introverts are louder, that's also worthwhile. So one is consistent with generally held cultural expectations, and the other one is contrary to generally held cultural expectations. Either one of those is interesting. If you do the obvious thing, then if that winds up on Twitter or something, people say, oh, duh. And that's fine. I mean, it's also meant to be read in, in the context of complete coherent paragraphs, but sometimes for the Harper's Instagram account or the Twitter account, these get split up into smaller pieces. And then some of them kind of lose their meaning in that context, where some of them work very well even in isolation. So if you had a, a string of four really obvious findings where conventional common sense would have told you that, then those four together kind of make sense in that the reader can detect what it is that the author is doing. But if you just tweet out one of those, it's less obvious what's going on there by stating the obvious. Right. The zombie cicada one, huge, went viral. One of the great all-time findings taken out of context. For the curious, I think what that item was about was a warning against consuming hypersexual zombie cicadas who were hypersexual zombie cicadas because their brains had been taken over by a special fungus that made them hypersexual zombies. Yes. And right. So the scientists were saying, don't eat these just because they're psychoactive. It's a bad idea. And this surely alerted many more people to the existence of this psychoactive substance than had been aware of it before. But anyway, I I hope nobody went out and, and ate the cicadas. But if they did, then I hope they had a good time. <laughs> Yes. Uh, zombies, of course, really big right now. Rich uh, analogy, rich metaphor for contemporary life. I guess, how would you say that your approach to findings has changed over the years with anything like this? Again, the, the assignment is clear, or more or less clear. The intent is clear. What you're drawing from the same sort of topics every month. How has your approach changed? Do you feel like it's evolved or do you feel like you just refined what you had already sort of gotten right when you inherited it from Roger Hodge in 2007? This is a strange question because it's, there's such a strong sense of recognition since this is, this is a question, the one other time that I was properly interviewed about findings was in 2013 by a writer named Dave Madden. And we wound up putting that interview in the little book of illustrated findings, just cartoons, each you know, illustrating an individual finding that came out the next year. And Dave asked me the same question eight years ago, probably more than eight years ago at this point. And I would say that the 
answer I gave him then still holds, which means that things haven't changed very much in the past eight <laughs> years. So by 2013, by the time I'd been doing it for five years, basically, I had gotten bored of most obvious topics. So when things were big in the news or when things were very regular topics of with a lot of funding and that typically made headlines in that area. So just two disparate examples are sort of major particle accelerator news. And on the other side, maybe something like Alzheimer's research, unless there was something really weird, I wouldn't go for it. It was it was just already too much out there. It was something that got a lot of coverage that people thought of as science qua science. And I started to try to avoid those. The other thing that I started doing around then was kind of driving for a deliberate obscurity where the reader doesn't always have to understand what the finding is about. So so often these things are of necessity so reductive that the reader's not going to understand them. I'm not even going to understand them. If there's something that that is sort of something something very advanced in the material sciences, in I, I should say in materials science or in genetics, it's just it's not even going to be something that I can completely figure out reading through the paper. So then in that case, I might just present something almost verbatim that is about the highly technical nature of a particular discovery where it kind of can't be dumbed down and just leave that for the reader to sort of encounter for the sound of it, for the way that the words look on the page, for maybe being able to make a guess about what's happening, what this is even about. And that that happens a fair amount where there are terms salted in or discoveries framed in a way that you would actually just have to go look it up to figure out what it really means because it can't be reduced to a sentence. And that's okay as well. And it gives you some sense of the iceberg tip in a way. Right. Yeah. No, I remember you sent me a story about the creamy layer, which is there was some legislation going on in India, and perhaps this can transition to the fiction portion of the discussion. But the creamy layer, it, it sounds very funny. But in fact, it's sort of like the layer at which the layer of society socioeconomically you can exist and just sort of have a have a life and and not be impoverished like have enough money but of course like to explain that to say that such and such percent of indians were living in the creamy layer it's just better to say you know they're in the creamy layer and you know the copy editor came to me and he was like well don't you want to like explain what this is and i'm like no let's just leave the creamy layer be because sometimes you need that mystery especially if the Obviously, I have this problem on a weekly level, but maybe you have this on a monthly level too, where just some months, the stuff that's coming out doesn't quite cohere in the way you would want it to. And then you end up throwing away things that are great, but just don't fit into the overall, the work itself. Creamy layer actually requires another sort of term of sociological or political art from India, which is backward class. Yes. So you actually have to you have to double up. So if it's a a constitutionally defined backward class or caste whose members are more or less eligible for for a version of affirmative action, 
then there's a subdivision there where if you are from one of those castes or classes, but you are above a certain economic and educational threshold, then you're subdivided. Yes, yet again, you are the kind of forward part of the backward class. And uh, that's that's something that would be very hard to explain in the format of the weekly, which is very compressed, just like findings is. So you would have to do the purely linguistic version of it, where that that's kind of the appeal, that creamy and backward are these loaded, interesting terms that someone can go run and look up, or their eyes can just sort of pass over and say, oh, that's that must be about something, and never shall it be thought of again. <laughs> so many things are now. It's the nature of the world. I think the thing that keeps it fresh or that varies the approach somewhat is just that there are always different gags and things to pursue. So it might be that the entire end of one paragraph, the items all add up to one pop culture reference of some kind. It might be hip hop lyrics. It might be it might be a William Blake poem. Not that that's exactly a pop culture reference, but there are, there are things to play with that are always going to be different kinds of things that have a different purpose and that keep it fresh for me in some way after doing, I don't know, I mean, at least a hundred of these. I can't actually calculate it off the top of my head, but I've been doing this since the end of 2007. So whatever keeps it interesting, whether it's completely juvenile toilet humor or whether it's finding the pun to make one dignified thing into juvenile toilet humor. It's basically juvenile toilet humor. That's what keeps it fresh for me. <laughs> so I, I wanted to turn now to your short story, An Errand, which appears in the January issue. It's set in Delhi and throughout the story, there are a lot of references to the Urdu language. In particular, the narrator is enthralled by his sister's incredible command of Urdu, and there are also references to Urdu literature. Could you speak a bit about that decision to place an emphasis on Urdu and how it fits or what it means within a North Indian context? So this is a tricky question to answer because it requires defining what Urdu is in a way and how it differs from Hindi. And this is a politically and historically and linguistically contentious issue that uh, scholars have struggled to clarify. So I'll try to make it brief and not extend beyond my comfort zone. But basically, you have a North Indian language that you could call Hindustani. And this is split into Hindi and Urdu, which are either different dialects or different registers, but probably not different languages. And Urdu is written in the Perso-Arabic script and more identified with Muslims and with Islamic culture and has more loan words from Persian and Arabic and even Turkish. And Hindi is written in the Devanagari script, which is the same as Sanskrit and involves more Sanskrit loanwords. And Urdu is now more identified with Pakistan and Hindi, especially a kind of hyper-Sanskritized government version, is promoted in India. 
And there are, of course, many other languages in these two countries, and many people don't speak them at all or speak them only as second or third languages. But that's, that's sort of the, the broad shape of it. Now, in the past, Urdu had more preeminence as a literary language among the elite, and that included... North India, there's the, there's the Hindi belt, which is the sort of larger region of Hindi and sub-languages that are very similar. But the world that this story is concerned with is this smaller chunk that's especially centered around old courtly life at Lucknow. Even today, someone wanting to study classical Persian would maybe study in Lucknow rather than in Tehran because it's, in a sense, better preserved there. But you have the common Hindustani language that you would listen to, for example, if you were watching a Bollywood film. It's not clear that that is specifically Hindi or Urdu, except the song lyrics are much more dependent on Urdu literary tradition. So if you're watching a Bollywood movie, then that's the distinction there. It's also remarked on that the narrator's sister has had to make a real effort to become good at Urdu. It's not something that would naturally happen in a school or even within one's family. You would really have to go out of your way to identify with those literary traditions and to cultivate yourself. And, you know, that's that's clearly the case among the elite. If you're a Pakistani or Indian or Bangladeshi writer and you're, you're a member of the elite writing for the broader literary world, you're going to write in English these days. So Urdu as a literary culture, both because of the sort of the, the Hindi-Urdu jockeying, but also because of the ascendance of English, is just totally gone. What am I writing this story in about this world? I'm writing in English. I couldn't write this in Urdu if I wanted to. I just don't have the ability. What language is... Mohsen Hamid writing in, or Arundhati Roy writing in. Actually, Roy's not the best example because she's not from a Hindi or Urdu-speaking family. But in any case, the the literary and cultural elite are all going to write in English these days. There isn't much persistence of this old world in which Urdu, as the as the preeminent literary language, is is still around. And that's a, that's another distinction I should say between. Hindi and Urdu is that Hindustani is is a kind of common colloquial language. So that was the Bollywood example. Whereas the higher register literary or technical is where you see the vocabularies depart. But that that world of Urdu letters and then the kind of narrower world of old feudal or courtly life that's commingled with this Urdu language culture in, in which the narrator and his sister and these other characters are participating, that's meant as something that that's mostly vanished and my writing this in english about this world is itself a, a kind of meta elegy i suppose i mean i would be interesting to hear about the role of folklore you know folklore plays a pretty big role in the story and, and even just having sort of a folkloric feel and your previous story for Harper's also used this a bit. And so I would be interested to hear why do you find yourself, or at least in these two stories, why do you find yourself sort of going to that well of folklore? Oh, very interesting. There was actually a third 
previous story, the first the first piece of fiction of mine that Harper has published, which is very non-folkloric. But then the one previous to this was called The Ultimate Warrior. And the, the basic shape of that is it's mostly a, f- a fairly naturalistic story that is set in the mostly set in the sort of looking back at the late 1980s when the narrator as a young boy comes to New York from India and the narrator and his mom stay with a friend of hers who is a folklorist. So it's at a very explicit level why the folklore is entering the story in that story. But but whenever it comes up, it's because it's connected to this character's research or it kind of drops in as something the narrator is just interested in or hears somewhere. So it's really blocked off in in The Ultimate Warrior as folklore, sort of for the sake of folklore. These are these are stories that that are being collected in this in this anthropological process and that are being rewritten and rethought. And you look at the events that are taking place in the story through the lens of these other stories, which are presented in a kind of hermetic way as as separate objects, as separate sort of literary or cultural objects that just kind of drop into the story. I think I made up most of them, or some of them are plays or on old Turkish or Persian folktales, and some of them are, actually some of them are European too, but they just kind of plop in there and are meant to change the way you look at the rest of the story. Whereas this story, I suppose, uh, an errand, which is in the January issue, the entire thing is kind of like a fairy tale or a folk tale. And when the characters in it are talking about these things that sound very fairy tale like or folktale like, even the most far fetched ones, those are being presented as things that actually occurred in the recent or distant historical past. And so they actually join with the texture and with the events of the story itself. So you have this overall cast of slightly dreamy unworldliness. And within that, the fairy tales are, are in effect real or the folk tales are in effect real. So there's, there's the story of the erotomania of the narrator and sister's auntie, not meant to, to mean one of their fathers or mothers siblings but um but actually in the more in the more distant sense of a, a relation uh where you know any any elder female relation it could, this could be who's not doesn't have a specific uh kinship term and i didn't want to pick a specific kinship term to to pin her down so she's she's just an auntie of theirs so that's that's one of these weird things is that is that she is having an actual sort of a, a kind of dsm5 psychological disorder but it's being presented in this way that's that's a bit folktale like and then there's a further departure from the real later on when you get in these sort of stranger and stranger stories that are still presented as if they had actually happened that the characters are dealing with and and one of those has to do with this quest that the narrator and sister are going on to look for a seller of hearts. And we never really find out what these hearts are, exactly what they mean. But um, we can talk a little more about that later if you want. But 
that is actually stolen. Not so. <laughs> one of the hearts that they later encounter, one of these mysterious hearts. Advertised to them. That is advertised. <laughs> and the backstory on this heart is that it belonged to a certain woman and gotten to the situation uh, where she was looking for her lost daughter. And that moment in the story is from the Sylvia Plath poem, Poem for a Birthday, which is, that begins with the line, this is the city where men are mended. And then later in the poem, there is a stanza, goes, a workman walks by carrying a pink torso. The storerooms are full of hearts. This is the city of spare parts. So the idea of a city of spare parts and a storeroom full of hearts was one of the three little pieces that inspired this this whole story. And that Plath poem, that aspect of it, the city where men are mended is, is drawn from Malian folklore. So that actually goes back to a different tradition and infused this entire story. And I think there were actually three, there were three little pieces that came to me one day. And one piece was these lines from Plath. And then there was the memory of getting lost in Old Delhi and stumbling on this alley of stationers who specialized in wedding invitations. And then the other was combining my tailor in Delhi and his business partner into a single character and then kind of changing them and making them someone more different than that. And so I had these three elements, the tailor, the plath poem, and the wedding stationer's alley. And I was at Yado as writers sometimes are. And because it was not the summer when everyone is drunk and skinny dipping, but <laughs> I think March into April, I felt guilty and productive. And so I sat down and wrote the story in about five hours. And it hasn't changed very much at all since then. This is just how it came out. And huh. as with findings, you sometimes wind up with something very coherent. If you have some disparate chunks, you can find a way to make them work. But I was surprised that this sort of fit into a narrative because a lot of the time when I start with some little chunks like that for fiction, it doesn't turn into a complete story. There's just not enough there. But this sort of wound up producing itself and and at great speed. So yeah, that's some of the that's some of the folklore that we were talking about. Wow. That's amazing that it just came out. That's that's a I I'm sure you just scared the shit out of a bunch of writers who are listening because that's in, very impressive. <laughs> this is an unusual thing. I mean, well, it scares them only if they like the story, right? Um, but the, <laughs> I mean, there's there's sort of that long that long vicious tradition of questioning Joyce Carol Oates's skill because she is a fast writer, but um, or Stephen King. Yeah, I mean, although it's like, yeah, King, Stephen King, I think it's easier for me to think of him as being like Dickens, where he's just a machine and people will still read him in 150 years. So so even even the bad stuff makes a kind of sense and the good stuff is good. But the yeah, the normal process is sometimes still fairly fast, but usually I have to sit on a story for three or four years and go back to it every 12 or 16 months and see that something is fundamentally wrong with it. And it just has to sit in a drawer until it works. But this one, I I feel, worked from the outset. So that was, that was pretty nice. 
the whole story, I mean, you were describing earlier, you're sort of doing this dance between English and Urdu and making sure, you know, these different languages, making sure that everything kind of flowed together. I was wondering if you could discuss, you know, the role of Ghazals, which are these Arabic poems that were later embraced by Persian poets, or Dastangoy, which are 13th century Persian poetic verse. Again, as you said, Urdu is uh, it's an Indic language with a lot of Persian loanwords and some some Arabic influence as well. So how did those did those traditions, those poetic traditions guide you in a more concrete way than just sort of being these things that the sister when the narrator is praising his sister, he sort of mentions these very high literary forms. Yeah, so there aren't any particular ghazals or dastan that went into this, but the the broader culture that supports those traditions is completely tied up with the world that the narrator and his sister occupy, this slightly antique courtly North Indian, in their case, Muslim world. And so it would be very much in the in the background and the everyday music of their lives. But there aren't any particular references. I suppose there's a way to look at some of the stories that are being told within the story as part of these larger poetic and storytelling traditions. So there there might be there might be some degree of of slippage there where they are a part of that world and there are explicit references to these poetic and narrative traditions that kind of bubble up in the story in a way, in spite of the fact that none of these characters have appointed themselves storytellers in a formal way. But there's there's something fairly, fairly formal and fairly expert about the way that some of them go about selling selling their wares or telling their personal stories that feels sort of shut off from the more everyday world of of just average dialogue. So so maybe that's a way that it's that it's seeping in even if there aren't any any specific close references. Yeah, I mean the cuz the ghazal is uh, a romantic or form of sort of romantic poem and obviously the the notion of a heart someone who sells hearts to repair something not physically wrong with your heart, but sort of something emotionally or sexually that you need to achieve. You know, it fits well within that world, as you were saying. And oh. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, oh. Oh. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? Oh. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, I mean, so this, I, I mean, th- there was, there's a very slight thing here, which is that Aga Shahid Ali, who's a cousin of mine by marriage, was one of the great practitioners of the the modern ghazal. He was one of the people who gave new life to this tradition in the late 20th century. Hmm. So there's so there's a bit of a there's a bit of a resonance there. And of, of course the family in this story is vaguely based on on my own family. But that's a that's a great point that you make about the this sort of this form of the ode or or these these sort of these love couplets, these love centric couplets being in the story, because it is all about hearts and desire and things like that, which is one of these. It's that's one of these experiences I've had since I started writing fiction, kind of as a hobby, that taught me that the intentional fallacy is is 
something that you should very much be aware of all the time. Because if if I gave this to the story to a group of 12th graders, they would come up with amazing themes that the author supposedly suggests or posits that I have no idea that I'm doing. And so that connection that you made, I'm sure was there on some level, but I, I did not intend it. A- another one that came up since we talked about this earlier was that there's a slight suggestion that the narrator is himself gay. And I didn't put that in there. It didn't occur to me that that was a way to read it because that's not the way that I'm thinking about that character to the because I identify too strongly with the narrator. So I didn't mean to write him as a kind of secret, wildian, queer character. But as soon as it was pointed out to me, I was delighted that that was a way to read it and that lent a different kind of depth and complexity to that interaction and to the the open question of of what these characters are dealing with. Yeah, because I mean... I'm curious. I, the reason why I was bringing up the the hearts is that the ending is very abrupt, and you could almost see it as this the story wasn't even about the heart at all, and it would be the heart again to leap back to English. Uh, the heart would be a red herring, which is just like a very funny kind of joke. But I mean, I'm curious to hear, like you know, talking through that decision to have seemingly when the narrative is about to kick into overdrive and we're about to finally see uh, certain things or the the results of certain actions, the story ends. That's also, that's interesting that you regard it as... Will Stevenson said it was as abrupt. abrupt. I'm just, I didn't think I'm it was asking abrupt, but again, I learn new things every <laughs> time I talk to somebody about something I've written. This actually reminds me, so I uh, I will shamelessly say that in a New York Times Magazine story I have coming out, right around now there's uh it's a profile and also a science story and the new yorker recently ran a profile of the same person and when i was wrapping up the times magazine version of the story she said that she found the new yorker story to have a very abrupt ending and i couldn't see it. I just thought that was that was nuts. It just had such a kind of gradual, clearly signaled, very 1980s, the world of Mr. Sean, <laughs> sort of New Yorker feeling that it, it it seemed like it was wrapping up for three thousand words in a in a very in a very languorous way, and then the person it's about read it as abrupt, and I think my ending is much more abrupt. But as to this story, it's true. You don't you don't find out what the hearts really are, but they've done their job. And I think that's that's the thing that makes the ending complete. And for those who wanted to find out more about what they were, we know they're physical. They're some kind of non-biological totemic object but how they come into being is completely mysterious and what their connection is to the living people who somehow spawned them is mysterious. I didn't want to resolve that. I thought it was the one time I got a note from a reader on this story early on who said, I think we need to find out what these are. To me, that was like suggesting that we need to know what's in the glowing briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It would just be 
absolute heresy. But it's interesting to have a different perspective because there are completely legitimate things about fiction writing in particular that 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 the author just can't anticipate because we don't we don't know ourselves well enough and we don't know the effect of what we're doing quite well enough for it ever to be completely under our control. So abrupt, non-abrupt, whether a character is meant to read as queer. I mean, these are these are all things that I'm I'm open to being wrong on in addition to being the author. Just as we were talking, someone else asked me or, or just said that I don't really understand what this story is trying to do, which is an interesting, I mean, I would encourage you not to take offense to that, but you can if you want to. So I guess because, do you feel like because you are sort of navigating these two different traditions or just sort of that it might be more confusing to someone who, I don't know, only read English literature and hasn't necessarily explored sort of other types of linguistic literary traditions? That's a very, that's an interesting question. So in the story, we have a narrator and his sister who go on a kind of quest and encounter a lot of people who are telling stories as they switch from being on an errand to order some wedding invitations to trying to save or backstop their somewhat elderly auntie's about to take place late in life marriage, the one for which they're ordering the wedding invitations. And the events that take place and the stories that arise are not linked to any particular tradition. So if something about the story feels obscure or confusing, I don't think that has to do with Awadhi culture or with Persian folklore or with anything like that, because that that stuff is all, that's all there as as kind of Hydra heads of the universal. <laughs> and I think it's just the the form of the Anglo-American short story that is being executed in a way that might be slightly inaccessible or, or unappealing to a particular reader. So I think that that there's not there's not a cultural difference there because that would be like saying I don't get what Baldwin is about because this is about black America or something like that. So I think if there's something there that's kind of resisting a feeling of 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 getting it, that is on the level of form and not on the level of cultural or narrative content. And also, I mean, also form, form and intent kind of go together in a way. So it's just it's just meant to be a, a mysterious story where the narrator and his sister have a series of adventures. And I would like to come back to these characters and give them more adventures in slightly more comprehensible form, or not more comprehensible, but where there's not a kind of glowing, to some maybe frustrating mystery at the heart of the story. No pun intended. No, but I mean, you know, you were mentioning, I, 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 I don't want to say I have a deep knowledge, but I do have a pretty substantial knowledge of, um, you know, magical realism in Latin American literature and sort of how these different. Um, and so to me, this was not confusing at all. And I mean, I feel like that's, it. you know, the heart is just it's it's just a part of the story, but it's not necessarily the focus of the story. 
which is why I said it was kind of like a red herring because they're going, they're going, they're going, but it's, it's really, it's not about that at all, to me at least. It's a part of a greater whole and the greater whole doesn't necessarily, I don't know, I find it interesting that it's, it's seemingly goal-oriented and yet the, the achievement of that goal is not actually a big deal at all. Yeah, I find your reading both legitimate and in line with how I think about it, whereas I find other readings legitimate and completely surprising and <laughs> things that I never would have thought of. And I think that, that yes, that Latin American magical realism is is not a bad way to approach the story if you're coming to it cold and and there's no there's no reason that that is any more or less of a legitimate influence that I could point to in the story than than the sort of than the cultures that are more obviously near to hand. Right. No, I'm not yeah, and I'm certainly not being like, "Oh yeah, you just set out to write a magical realist story" cuz which I mean which you have you have Salman Rushdie above all others doing magical realism in the in the Indian subcontinent context. So, yeah, it's a it's it's a thing. It's a thing that has been done and I don't know if that's exactly what I'm doing here, but it's certainly not far off from what I'm doing if it's not the exact thing I'm doing. Yeah, I just find it a way to I guess that familiarity allows me to sort of read this without necessarily the burden of the Anglo-American short story and sort of the traditional sort of like things that happen. But again, I don't know. Maybe I'm just sort of like pat patting myself on the back for knowing Spanish, <laughs> reading, you know, reading Borges or whatever. But no, no I'm, no, I'm not. That's... I'm just saying, you know, it's just there, there are different ways to come at this. And I think, yeah, your familiarity with different things may or may not help you come to the story. I, I completely accept and validate your reference <laughs> to magical realism. In... My feelings are valid. Okay, good. <laughs> but really the worst thing to do would just be sort of like mush it all together. Because again, I think, you know, this is so clearly concerned with a specific language, a specific group of people, a specific family, you know, sort of like this like slightly degraded nobility. And Well put. <laughs> I think about slightly degraded nobility quite a lot, but we alluded to this before, the Muslim aspect that, you know, you're writing this story in 2021. There are a lot of, a couple of genocides going on against Muslims. There are also, you know, what the BJP is doing to sort of otherize and degrade Muslims has been going on for a long time and it seems only to be getting worse. And I'm not saying that every story that deals with these subject matter, either that that religion and that group of those group of people in India necessarily has to be a political statement. But how do you feel like that component, if if it fits in at all, fits into the the narrative? I think it fits into the narrative in that the alternate or fuzzy timeline of the world in which this story is taking place, that's that stuff that you talked about is kind of not happening there. And that is something that is maybe conspicuous by its absence to not to most readers, but maybe to some readers, or just in being an elegy for an older world of a, you know, a kind of religiously syncretic culture in India. I mean, that's a massive oversimplification, but in which these lines had not been 
kind of drawn and you know inscribed and reinscribed by various political actors it's meant to to look back toward a different world so it's yeah it's it's kind of it engages with contemporary reality insofar as that contemporary reality is kind of not intruding on the world of the story and there's one thing comes to mind which is that you would you would asked me to text you just before we started recording the handle for Memudabad, which is the, it is the little sort of, um, I don't know how to quite to put it, is a very distinguished courtly family from the Lucknow world who appear as themselves in the story, undisguised, described sort of as they are in life, these very old-fashioned, sophisticated, feudal, sort of small-town rajas. And they're people who even today kind of, more than anyone else I know, live in that world before the fall of you know, the, the, the stuff we were just talking about, so to speak. I mean, completely binary and ridiculous way of putting it, but they are really out of time. And in Memudabad, they still carry on in a much more, I don't know quite how to put it, but that's a world in which when there are these endless Shia religious ceremonies, the local Hindu population without thinking shows up to participate in them, to mourn the martyrdom of Ali. And so it's it's very much in keeping with the story. If this is a story out of time, then these these guys who are out of time in the current day in a way in their connection to that old feudal and courtly world they they are the best they're the best symbols for it so so they fit very naturally into the story as themselves from current reality and they're kind of the um the purest form of of that kind of culture we've been talking about yeah and also their instagram is great i mean if you want to see just lots of live streams of Shia ceremonies <laughs> and uh, and things like that, then go check them out. I think they're at Mahmoudabad. Yeah, I mean, I think this kind of connects to your piece about C.C. Moore, because I was, I was preparing the From the Archives email, which I do every week. If you don't get it, sign up. It's free. And I found this piece by Aldous Huxley, which is called The Only Way to Write a Modern Poem About a Nightingale. And Towards the beginning, he's he's saying, quote, science may be defined as a device for investigating, ordering, and communicating the more public of human experiences. Less systematically, literature too deals with these public experiences. End quote. Obviously, I could I could just read the whole thing because it's I, I love it. But I I was curious, you know, when you are navigating, you have this firm background with science or familiarity with science and, and dealing with it in these ways, how do you feel it informs your fiction writing or even just sort of your literary nonfiction writing where you do kind of have to be precise, but also these are personal experiences that the writer is just trying to convey? I think the the question sort of breaks down in two directions. One is about whether findings as a weird, highly compressed literary form that is both fairly voicey, but also that voice is a kind of depersonalized institutional vibe. It's not, it's not me in a way. 
I'm the curator of that voice <laughs> for as long as I write the column versus being somewhat conversant with science topics, broadly speaking. And I, I wouldn't say that I'm especially scientifically knowledgeable. I just have so much exposure that I, I can, I have a kind of very basic lay grasp of of a range of topics and and I can also get on board with with something new relatively quickly because I kind of I have some sense of what to, of what to look for. But you did that hand sanitizer piece and you were like doing stuff with like a Bunsen burner. Come on. Um <laughs> but that that also that that doesn't take any that's just following a recipe. That's just Okay. That's that's more because I'm a reasonable cook than you had the equipment. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, although things like having a, a magnetic stirrer that was for various nut milks. It was it was oh. not to make hand sanitizer. That's why that was around. <laughs> so so findings as a highly compressed form. Yeah, that probably has lessons for for fiction as well as nonfiction. If you can really squeeze something into the smallest amount of space possible and think of the buried lead that you can pull out of anything then then that's that's a form that has applied to other things I've done and the place where it made the most obvious appearance was in other nonfiction things I've written where there are tremendous condensations of narrative or of a lot of slightly disparate events converging or sort of you know, a, a wacky chronology of stuff that's just got to be squeezed down that I feel really comfortable with. And as a result of writing findings, and I can also squish it way past what most people would feel comfortable with. So it becomes an almost an almost comic form where the fact that you're doing so much compression is a little bit of a wink. So that's that's one place the lesson transfers, but that's not science as such. And I don't know. I don't know that that exposure that exposure to huge amount of just what's what in in science every month changes my outlook that much. I well, no. I mean, in I was just you know just in the way that Huxley is sort of saying that a modern writer must bring together science and literature. Oh yeah, I forgot about your Huxley quote, huh? Okay. Yes, it is interesting to think of you know that. These these things are seemingly divided, but in reality, they are they're after the same goal. And to hear you talk about your process is always, you know, I think it's it's helpful to anyone. It's helpful to me. I mean, I have to do like the the third rate version every week <laughs> with the weekly review. <laughs> I mean, if 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 anything helps anyone with process, then. Hold on, let me, let, me think, let me think of whether I have anything to say there. I mean, mo most of most of my process involves wasting weeks and months just, you know, frittering away time on eBay or, you know, whatever a man of my age does, day trading cryptocurrency. I mean, just just absolute nonsense. And so when when I can actually sit there and concentrate on something that is that is a wonderful reward. And I certainly am grateful for the, the regularity of findings because it keeps me on task with one thing every month where I can just I can just blow through a huge amount of information and try to make it 
available and slightly entertaining for other people. Yeah. It's certainly a different muscle, let's say. But does that, the act of writing that, does that sort of keep you ready for longer either pieces of fiction or for literary nonfiction? No, it's just another distraction. It's, <laughs> it's because if I'm actually working on something else and then it becomes findings time every month, I have to drop everything and go yes. to that for a while. The but blessing and the curse of a column. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the blessing and the curse. But it's, um, I mean, I kind of wish that I had done more long form science stuff drawing on things I'd encountered when composing findings every month because I see things about which I think that would be really interesting to give a five or seven or 8,000 word treatment to. And then two years later, I'll see someone else has finally done it. So I did that with this one thing recently, though that the, the C.C. Moore profile in the Times Magazine did not come out of findings. It is a sort of a science story. It's about using DNA databases to solve cold cases. But that was just a suggestion that came from a friend. That was not something I came across in findings. However, whenever you have to reteach yourself high school biology, it's it's helpful if you've had to do that every three or four months anyway. It takes less time to get back up to speed. Right. I think everyone would probably have a slightly different answer, but how would you describe the Harper's sensibility? Because I think if someone comes across something like the weekly review in the wild, they might not totally get it. Or if, as we were discussing before, if it's sort of been separated, a line has been separated from its fellows in some paragraph or part of a run that's sort of riffing on this a similar idea. How would you describe the Harper's sensibility? That's tricky because, of course, Harper's is a place that lets writers have their own voices more than some other publications do and where as an editor I would try to help people be the best version of themselves but not push them so far that that they would wind up sounding like something that that was unnatural but the index and weekly review and findings are all pseudo anonymous or or group written in the case of of the index or completely anonymous. It just it just depends. I mean, with findings, I'm credited online, but not in the magazine, for example. So those share in common this this voice that that you're getting at, which is kind of deeply feeling. It's a lot of irony, but without being dead inside. Mm, yes. This is the difference Lewis Lapham once described, actually, back when he was the editor of Harper's, is the difference between being a satirist and an ironist is that the satirist still has hope. And I think that has a lot to do with the voice. It's that that distinction where there's something very deadpan and often very gloomy about these products, but it's not without hope. And it's not without a delight that isn't just kind of grim black humor. There's some lightness there. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. It's not just sort of being like, you never want to be laughing at someone, or if you are laughing at someone, it should be the right person because they did something. The people in power who deserve to get mocked and maybe don't always get mocked. One way to look at it, I suppose, is that 
I would separate it out and say that it, it is highly ironical without being completely without hope. But it's, it's irony that's always in the service of people who are actually trying. These forms don't yes. actually take scientists or politicians or members of the public or writers or anybody to task for sincere and right-hearted effort. It's, it's on the side of all those people. I mean, sincere and right-hearted effort if you've got shit politics, I don't know. But that's, that's, <laughs> that's a distinction too far that I don't think we, we have the space to get into because, you know, it is, it is of course, mostly a lefty magazine. Heterodox. It is, it is a heterodox lefty magazine. It is interesting to hear someone sort of summarize what the sensibility is because it can be so misinterpreted. It can be you know, taken out of context in a way that's not hopeful, not necessarily maliciously. It's just by virtue of the way media works now, the internet, that these things could kind of get taken out. And to know that Harper's is a magazine, it's a singular magazine. It's heterodox, but it is always meant to go with everything else in the magazine, right? And I think there are a lot of publications that they don't necessarily do that anymore. Like they may have a sensibility, but you can kind of take these different pieces out. Yeah, you do kind of need the rest of the magazine to understand the index or findings. I think they can live on their own, but it's very much wrapped up in the idea of being part of an institution that offers you a range of emotional and intellectual and literary experiences as opposed to something that be can be completely divorced from the rest of it in the way that say, the New Yorker cartoon caption contest can just live on Instagram and you can submit your captions there and you never need to go near the New Yorker. And in fact, it probably attracts a lot of people who wouldn't want to read the New Yorker in the way that there are many, many people in prison who subscribe to Harper's solely for the puzzle. That's right. Let me tell you, I put the new issue up every month, every, every article available uh, you get one free one, obviously. But if the puzzle is not working, those people are vicious. Yeah. Actually, I, I shouldn't say that. The, there are people mostly not incarcerated who get it primarily for the puzzle. <laughs> people in prison are the most committed Harper's readers who very carefully consider their letters to the editor and things like that. So you can you can tell they've read the thing cover to cover. Yeah, that's right. Well, thank you, really. This was great. Thank you. Um, fun talking. Happy to do it again sometime. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays, to get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save. 